praying for these nights and, and this morning, trust in the word of God will do a great impact and a powerful work in our hearts and lives. I, I don't think any of us watch the news without shaking our head. Well, we won't shake our head a lot at the news, but... But we have to walk away saying, in times like these, we need the Bible. In times like these, we need a Savior. It's what a housewife out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, wrote in the height of World War II, uh, when it just seems like things can't get worse. And, and if you don't think it can get worse, well, there's a verse that says, perilous times shall come, and not much later, there's a little phrase, worse and worse. And why the times are evil and they're falling apart. But if you don't think it can get worse, well, read this thing called the tribulation in the Bible. It will get worse. But I'm thankful in times like these, the child of God can sing with the housewife that we have a Savior. And in times like these, we have a Bible. We have the rock where we can run, even in wicked, dangerous, perilous times. God bless you this morning. You have your Bible to the book of Luke in chapter number 19. As you approach this chapter in the Bible at the end of Luke 18, the Lord Jesus Christ deals with a rich young ruler. Now, that perhaps doesn't impress us in America because, after all, if you're 30 and you haven't made your first million, I don't know what's wrong. You don't start on your second, I guess, but... But you know, we're kind of used to rich and young going together in America. And even more so, the phrase young and ruler really doesn't impress us. But in Bible times, understand that the words rich, young, ruler never went together. The only people that were people of wealth were those who had a a lifetime of labor to show for it. And you would certainly never elect a ruler to lead you unless there were plenty of gray hairs to show the experience. So when the Lord Jesus meets a man who is a rich young ruler, it doesn't impress our American eyes. But understand in Bible times, this is extraordinary. Why the people would look at this man, and and I know we kind of tend to believe that the whole prosperity gospel thing started a last century. But no, it was alive and well in the first century Israel and in the nations surrounding it. And in the first century, the people following Jesus, the, the Jewish multitude, they had been trained to believe that if somebody was a rich young ruler, well, could I use the word? They were blessed. I mean, you talk about healthy and prosperous and wealthy, and and I know that's the modern scheme of religion, that God wants you rich, and God wants you happy, and God wants you this, and God... No, no, God wants you saved. That's why he sent his only begotten son into the world. But you know, even 2,000 years ago, they would look at someone like this rich young ruler and say, what a life, what a man. Obviously, God has favored him. Obviously, God has blessed him. And in the thinking of first century religion, everyone was trained to look at this rich young ruler and assume that he was automatically saved. If anybody is saved, that guy has to be. And after a conversation with Jesus, and of course we wouldn't expect anything less, but what Jesus does is absolutely brilliant. He brings this rich young ruler to the place of choice. Will you trust in your wealth or will you trust in the Savior? Because you can't have it both ways. It is one or the other. And when confronted with such a choice, the rich young ruler walked away saying, in effect, I would rather trust my riches than have a savior wash my sins away. And while you and I shake our head and say, what a poor choice, understand that was at a very different level for his disciples because they were looking at a man all of their life. 
They had been convinced that kind of man is automatically saved. After all, look how blessed he is of God. And when he walks away without a savior, the disciples are looking at each other. They're incredulous. And they kind of have to ask the question, if, if Mr. Automatic is not saved, well, who then can be saved? It sets the table for Luke chapter number 19. Who then can be saved? If Mr. Rich, if Mr. Young, if Mr. Ruler, if Mr. Blessed is not saved, who then can be saved? You know, I don't know whether Jesus was laughing or not on the outside, but I, I have to think he was smiling on the inside. And we come to Luke chapter 19, and it is going to be a big old, watch this. And Luke chapter 19, with that question hanging in the air, who then can be saved? The Bible says, and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and and what do you know? And he was rich. Who then can be saved? Jesus says, watch this. Father, help us as we come to the Bible. I pray that our ears and our hearts would be open to the mighty word of God. And and may you speak to every single life in this place. For someone who has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I plead that this morning in repentance and faith, they would come to the Savior. And now, Lord, I pray for your children that the great lesson you taught your disciples in Luke chapter 19 would be the thing that penetrates our hearts even this morning. Father, we ask for your help in Jesus' great name. Amen. If we look at Luke chapter 19 and verse number 1, through our American eyes, we're not going to catch it. I mean, we read those words, and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and and so what's the big deal there? After all, many people in this auditorium, you pass through your town, and maybe you pass through another city, so you could come to Chesterton this morning. In America, it's nothing for us to pass through a city and to pass through a village and, and make our way to a certain place. So with our American eyes, what we miss in verse number one is that the Lord Jesus just managed to offend an entire village. He comes to this great city of Jericho and and the Bible tells us that he enters and he passes right through. You see, hospitality is important to us in America. But if you've ever been to the Middle East, Israel or another nation of the Middle East, you know that hospitality is on an entirely different level. And when Jesus comes to a city like Jericho, well, by now, of course, he is famous. There are multitudes of people that are following him. And when Jesus comes to a place like Jericho... It is expected that you are going to meet with our city elders. You are going to meet with our rich leaders. You are going to meet, of course, with the religious establishment. Why, it is expected that you will accept the hospitality of our city. And and most importantly, we will offer you a dinner and a meal. And it is expected that you will dine with us. And they would have quite a setup in Bible times in a a setting like this. The courtyard would be set up with a special table and special sofas, so to speak. And, And the important people would sit around the table. That courtyard's gates would be opened and all the nobodies would come and they would watch the somebodies as they ate. I mean, it really was quite the occasion and quite the deal. There's a lot of pomp. There's a lot of properness that belongs here. But but most important, it is just what you do. It is protocol. And so when the Lord Jesus enters the city of Jericho, you are expecting him to meet the leaders and expecting him to meet the wealthy, expecting him to meet the religious crowd. Not this time. 
Jesus enters and passes right through the city of Jericho. He has an appointment on the other end of the city that is far more important today. And the Bible tells us that while he enters and passes through Jericho, leaving the offended leadership behind in verse number two, there is in this verse a word that has become one of my favorite words in the Bible. And the book simply says, and behold. You know, I've come to really love that word, behold. Sometimes you read the word lo. In this case, it's the word behold. But you know, every time you read the word lo or behold in the Bible, it's kind of a Bible way of saying, fasten your seatbelt, here we go. I mean, it's the Bible's way. It's kind of the Lord's way of looking at you and me and saying, you know, you're not going to believe what happens now. Now remember, as you come to Jericho, hanging in the air is the question. If Mr. Rich Young Ruler, if Mr. Blessed is not saved, who then can be saved? And after the Lord Jesus just passes right through Jericho, I'm not dining today with the so-called important people. And verse number two, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. I don't know if in all the Bible you can find a man more inappropriately named than Zacchaeus. The name Zacchaeus means to be a just man, to be an innocent man, even to be a righteous man. My friend, Zacchaeus was anything but innocent, just, or righteous. And when the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to meet Zacchaeus, well, the biography we get in the Bible may seem impressive, but it's a real problem. Because Zacchaeus was the chief among the publicans. The publicans. In a place like Jericho 2,000 years ago, there wasn't a lower class of human than the publicans. Because you see, the publicans were the tax collectors. Now, if you work for the IRS, what can I tell you? We love you. Only because the Bible requires us to. No, 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 we love you. The, the problem wasn't so much being a tax collector or working for the IRS. The problem was who they were working for. Publicans in Israel worked for the hated Roman Empire. I'm many miles away why Rome just exerted their authority on a country like Israel. And these publicans were those that it was pretty much a pyramid scheme. They would collect taxes and Jericho loved taxes. I mean, there were tax booths along the two major highways that intersected in Jericho. There were tax booths when you entered through the gates of the city. They absolutely loved taxes. Everywhere you Look, taxes and taxes and more taxes. And these publicans collected the money. They would siphon off their cut and then they would send it on up to the Roman Empire. So if you were a publican in Israel, well, it wasn't just you collected taxes. You collected them for Rome. You were a traitor. You were a turncoat. Why well, am the religious thinking first century Israel? So long as you were Jewish, you were going to heaven. But the only way you'd be in trouble eternally is number one, if you're a murderer. Number two, if you were a thief. Or number three, if you were a publican. As soon as you became a publican, you were thrown out of the synagogue. I mean, the picture of Scrooge at Christmas time, sitting there counting his money without a friend in the world, would probably give us some kind of a picture of the publicans. They were thrown out of the synagogues. They were despised by their friends and family. Everybody hated them. They had to tolerate them. But I got to tell you, there wasn't too many things that was worse than being a publican. However, there was one thing in a place like Jericho that was worse than being a publican. 
publican. That would be if you were the chief publican. Because you see, the Roman Empire would come to a city like Jericho and they would auction off the publican business. The wealthy man would come if they had nerve and they would bid and they would bid and the guy with the highest bid won the business. And it really was a pyramid scheme. It really was a crime association. And so now the guy with the most money gets the bid. He becomes the chief publican. He is the guy who runs the business. So when all the normal publicans collect their taxes and they take their personal cut, before it is siphoned up to the Roman Empire, it goes through the boss of the family. And in Jericho, the guy who won the business was Zacchaeus. So when you get to the end of verse number 2, and the Bible simply says, and he was rich. Well, if you lived back then, it would go without saying. The publicans were rich, but the chief publican was even more wealthy. This was the guy that had his fingers into everything. Why, they hated the publicans. They hated the chief publican. So remember, as you come to verse number 2, if somehow you could visit a post office at Jericho 2,000 years ago, the picture on the wall most likely was Zacchaeus himself. Everybody in the city knew him, and everybody hated him. Remember the question? If Mr. Blessed isn't saved, if Mr. Rich Young Ruler is not saved, if that guy's not saved, who then can be saved? Now the Lord Jesus is ready to say, have you ever heard of the worst guy in town? Zacchaeus. That name would be like running your fingernails down a chalkboard. Zacchaeus, what a sorry man. So in verse number three, the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus has an appointment with Zacchaeus. And of course, remember, he's already rejected all of the honors and all of the offerings of the city. And Zacchaeus in verse number three sought to see Jesus who he was and could not for the press because he was little of stature. So like everybody else in that part of the world in that day, he no doubt hears the stories of Jesus. He hears the miracles, the messages, and he says, I want to see him for myself. The problem is there's always a massive crowd around Jesus. Perhaps they circle him as he walks along. So Zacchaeus wants to see him, and he can't for two reasons. Reason number one is because he is little of stature. 2,000 years ago in Israel, that would be a man less than five feet tall. So Zacchaeus is so short, the crowd is too big he can't see over the crowd well then normally you would expect it to say that a man would elbow his way through the crowd he kind of shove his way past the crowd Zacchaeus could never afford to do that because in Israel back in that day every man was packing I was preaching in California last week I had to explain what that meant <laughs> I'm assuming I don't have to worry about that here is that correct but uh, every man was packing But what they were packing was a dagger about this big. It fit right into every man's robe. They used it for the thieves. They used it for the wild dogs, maybe other animals. Every man was packing a dagger, yay big. And Zacchaeus knows I'm too short to see over the crowd. And while normally a man could elbow his way through the crowd, it would be nothing for somebody to pull out that dagger and stick it right in the back of public enemy, number one. He's too short to look over the crowd. It is too dangerous to mix it up with the crowd. So the Bible tells us in verse number four that he ran before. 
And again, we read those words with our American eyes and we yawn a little bit. Uh, maybe not in the dead of winter, but in certain times of the year, it is nothing for you to drive to work, maybe to drive to church on a Sunday morning and see some old guy out there jogging down the street. We're used to that. However, in Bible times, once a man was an adult, that man never ran anywhere. It was considered extremely undignified for an older man to run. And for a couple of reasons. Number one, he wore a robe and to run meant you had to reach down and take your robe and and stick it into your belt, so to speak. And that meant you had to show your knees. And there's not an old guy in the world that should be showing his knees to anybody. That's a problem. But you know, the second thing is that, well, by the time you got some white seasoning in your beard, you know, you're you're supposed to kind of walk contemplatively and you're thinking about everything and, and you're so wise and all these things give the impression. So in Israel, in Jericho 2,000 years ago, it was incredibly humiliating for a man to run. It was shameful for a man to run. When you realize that, it changes the story of prodigal son because that father is watching and that father is waiting. And now all of a sudden, you know, there's a figure coming towards the village that could, and when he realizes it's his boy, he begins to run after his son. That father is humiliating himself. The people are staring, maybe even laughing at that old man running through the streets, but he has a reason. He knows that if I don't get to the gate before my boy does, they will, the elders will meet him with what they call the kazaza ceremony. They will take my boy and humiliate him. They will whip him. They will taunt him. They'll say, you have shamed your village. You have shamed your family. They will take it upon themselves to beat my boy. When that father ran and humiliated himself, he did so so that he could take the humiliation that was coming his son. And now Zacchaeus is going to humiliate himself. And I don't care when you live, here or then. I don't care where you live, America or Israel. Old guys have zero business climbing up into trees. And yet the Bible says in verse number 4 that not only does he humiliate himself, not only does he run before, he runs ahead of the crowd, but now he climbs up into a sycamore tree for to see him. Their sycamores are a little different than American sycamores. The branches a little stronger and, and maybe even more importantly, the leaves a little wider because you get the idea that, that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he didn't want Jesus to see him. He should have asked Adam and Eve how that turns out. And sure enough, the Bible tells us that he's up in the sycamore tree, for he was to pass that way. And don't you love the words of verse number 5? Sometimes these quaint little phrases that just seem to be unimportant, or or they just seem to carry the story along. They, They preach a message in themselves. It says, and when Jesus came to the place, of course he did. The place today was not in the home of Mr. Mayor or Mr. Richman or, or certainly not with the religious establishment. The place was under a sycamore tree. And at the right time, at the right place, one more time, we are reminded of the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everywhere you turn, he, he's never hurried, he's never early, and he's never late. There is not a blast of hurry with him. Everything is always right on schedule and right on time. And in just the right place, at just the right time, Jesus comes to the place underneath that sycamore tree and for all the leaves and for all the hiding or for all whatever else it says that he looked up and saw him of course he did he comes to the right place and he looked up and there's Zacchaeus and Jesus saw him can you imagine the crowd you know, we are talking about public enemy number one now. And, and no doubt by this time they've circled the tree and, and somebody points up and says, there's somebody in the tree. And, and they get a little closer and everybody's looking in the tree now. And, and then the word gets out that Zacchaeus. 
Can you imagine how that name Zacchaeus must have just flown right through the multitude? Zacchaeus, and now they're pointing, and now they're laughing, and now the Bible tells us Jesus said unto him, Jesus is going to say a word or two. Now, you know what he said, and I know what he said. If you were to go to Sunday school when you were a child, you've heard it a thousand times. And and you know, and I know, or most of us know how the story turns out. But could I remind you, the people hadn't read Luke 19 yet. So when Jesus comes to the tree and Jesus looks up and saw him and, and Jesus is getting ready to say something, do you know what they are expecting? They are expecting Jesus to point his finger and say, Zacchaeus, you're the dirtiest man in town. Zacchaeus, you are so sorry. You are so wicked. The Roman Empire is the great enemy of Israel. I, Zacchaeus, how dare you steal? How dare you rob? I, Zacchaeus, who do you think you are? I, and they're expecting, so to say, Jesus to read him the riot act. And instead, Jesus said in verse number five, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thine house. Really? That little phrase, abide at thy house, is, is quite the phrase. It, it means, I want to come to your house and dine, but it's more than that. I want to stay with you. you. You know, we kind of look at this thing like, where do you eat dinner? You know, go through the drive through and get on your way. But, but no, the one that you abide with is the one you are saying to everyone else. This is my friend, and this is my crowd. That's what makes verse number one so offensive, where Jesus comes into the city and he passes through. Because in effect, he is saying, Mr. Mayor, you're not my crowd. And I'm sorry, Mr. Richman, you're not my crowd. And you can believe, religious establishment, you're not my crowd. In fact, back in Luke 15, where you read the great parable of lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Do you know where all that begins? It begins with the religious establishment fuming. You you read the Bible, you can almost see the steam just rise out of the scriptures. They are fuming because they have prepared their grand banquet. And Jesus would rather sit down and eat with publicans and sinners. And, And it wasn't just who had the better menu items. Jesus was looking at the religious establishment saying... These people are my people. So with the disciples all in a fret, if Mr. Successful, if Mr. Blessed isn't saved, who then can be saved? Now Jesus is standing under a sycamore tree and up in that tree is public enemy number one, the dirtiest rat in the whole city. And Jesus said, Zacchaeus, you're my crowd. Come down. Today I must abide at thine house. Well, Needless to say, Zacchaeus must have been stunned. But what we do know in verse number 6 is that he made haste, came down, and received him joyfully. You know, I personally just just love that. Because it seems like more and more our, our country, our religious world, is just infiltrated with this modern brand of religion. You know, this, this reform, uh, Calvinistic religion. <clears throat> Before you can be saved, you have to take a nine-month course. And you must learn all the nuances of creation and the delicacies of the Abrahamic covenants and et cetera, et cetera. And maybe in nine months, perhaps perchance, if you're one of the few, uh, you may know how to be saved. Brother, I don't know if you call this instant salvation or not, 
But Zacchaeus is sitting up on that branch, a lost man. And by the time his feet hit the ground, he is a saved man. No course to take, nothing to sign up for, no nine months here. Oh, Zacchaeus is sitting on that branch, a child of the devil. By the time he slides down that tree into the arms of Jesus, he is a child of God. You say, well, how do you know? Well, number one, he received him joyfully. But even more than that, the verses that follow in verse number eight tells us how Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, behold, the half of my good. I give unto the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. My Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Brother Zacchaeus is a new creature. He started the morning as the dirtiest thief in the whole city of Jericho. By the time he slides down that tree, Jesus not only changes his heart, Jesus changes his wallet. Brother, when the Lord gets a man's wallet, he's really got him. And Zacchaeus says, I have been a thief. I have done wrong. I'm not only going to get it right according to what the law says. I'm going to get it right times two. And, and you know, this is just a tradition. You can take it or leave it. But years later, in the northern part of Israel, there was a church that was pastored by a pastor named, we call him Pastor Zacchaeus. Not too far away, there was another church pastored by a pastor, Bartimaeus. Is that the same Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus that we read about in Luke chapter 19? You know, there's no way to know for sure. But there's a reason why it might be. Because when you read the book of Luke, usually it's the certain scribe, the certain this, the certain that. You don't get names. But all of a sudden, we get two names. And and a few decades later, when God is giving the words of the book of Luke to Dr. Luke, there's at least a possibility, I'd like to think, that the Lord was saying to the people in that day, you know Pastor Zacchaeus and you know Pastor Bartimaeus, let me give you their testimony as to how they got saved. Whether that's true, that's not true, just tradition that doesn't pass the muster of truth, whether it is or isn't, The fact that Jesus could save a man and then clean him up and then call him to preach, that certainly isn't beyond the thing impossible with him. So whether that's the same Zacchaeus or no, we are left with no doubt that Zacchaeus is absolutely changed by grace of God. Absolutely changed by the power of the living Christ. Sitting on that branch, he's a lost man. His feet hit the ground. Joyfully, he is now a child of God and his life will never be the same because the Lord Jesus has a lesson to teach his disciples. Remember, we come to Luke 19 and the disciples are saying, if Mr. Blessed isn't saved, who then can be saved? I mean, in Luke 18, the guy who automatically had to be saved is not. Now we come to Luke 19, and it's the one guy who cannot be saved, and he is. I counted, when I studied the book of Luke, to this point, 80 different lessons that Jesus taught his disciples. As this story takes place, seven, or maybe eight, days later, Jesus Christ is, or six, is going to be on a cross. Dying for the sins of the world. Three days later, he will rise from the grave. Within two months, the Lord Jesus will ascend into heaven. And the attention of the disciples is going to be on a world that is lost. Eighty different lessons, by my count, Jesus teaches his disciples. And now we come to lesson number 81. That would be found in Luke 19.10. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. 
The disciples are thinking, the one guy who must be saved isn't, who can be saved. And now Jesus points up to a sycamore tree and says, the dirtiest sinner in town, I have more than enough power to save his soul. I have more than enough power to change his life. My friend, do you realize with me this morning that if the Lord Jesus can save Zacchaeus, then there's nothing and there's no one that is too hard for him. You said, well, you don't know about my neighbor and you don't know about my loved one and you don't understand about my friend at school and, and you don't realize who my boss is on the job. But ladies and gentlemen, if the Lord had the compassion and the ability to save somebody like Zacchaeus, there was no one in Chesterton, Indiana, or any one of the cities and towns around this place who was too hard for him. That means this morning, if you've come in this building, you say, well, you don't know where I've gone, and you don't know what I've done, and you don't know what I've said, and you don't know what I've been. And of course, all of that is true. Yet the Lord does. And despite that fact, the Bible says God so loved the world, that means you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You say, but you don't know my background, and you don't know what I've done, and you don't know the sins I've committed. Yet you and I probably don't know the extent as to how wicked and evil Zacchaeus was. If the Lord can save Zacchaeus, there is not one person in this building that has gone so far But Jesus didn't go farther when he died on the cross for you. He came to seek to save Zacchaeus. He's come to seek and to save you more than anything else. Oh, I know religion says God wants you rich. No, he wants you in heaven. Oh, God wants you to be happy. No, God wants you to have eternal life. By the way, that'll take care of happy thing. God wants you eternally saved. That's why he gave his son, the Lord Jesus, to come to this world. He went, came to die a cross for you and for me. Buried, he rose again. And the Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father, but by me. The Lord Jesus died for you. He rose again for you. And this morning, he has the authority and the power, but even more, he has the great desire to wash your sins away and save your soul. That's why my friend, Pastor Mitchell, would love to have somebody sit down with an open Bible and show you from the Bible how you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, how you can trust Jesus to wash your sins away and save your soul. He can do it and he can do it here. If he could do it under a sycamore tree, why couldn't he do it in an auditorium of a place where Fairhaven Baptist Church meets? If the Lord Jesus could do it in in, in a sycamore tree in a place called Jericho, why couldn't he do it in an auditorium? in a place called Chesterton. No, he desires to save you. He desires to wash your sins away. And this morning, if you have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, his offer of forgiveness and salvation, well, if he could give it to public enemy, number one, he can extend it to you. We would be so honored to help you from the Bible so you can see for yourself how to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You know him as your savior. I, maybe, maybe we just need a revival of a compassion and maybe even more than a conviction and the belief that God is more than able to save the hardest of sinners. Could there be some prayer lists that the dust needs to be blown off this morning? I mean, maybe in years gone by, you all prayed for them, I prayed for my neighbor, prayed for my friend. And, you know, sometimes we get discouraged as time goes by. And I, I, I don't think my boy will ever get saved. And I don't think my neighbor will ever get saved. But everybody would have told you that morning, Zacchaeus will never get saved. And here he is in the word of God. Lesson number 81. A week later, Jesus would be hanging on the cross. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, before we put the story to bed for the day, I 
I, I think there's one other thing we need to see. Uh, uh, one more great lesson. And, and if you'd go back to verse number 7. As the Lord Jesus is loving with great compassion Zacchaeus. As for the multitude in verse number 7. When they saw it, they all murmured. You know, to us the word murmur is kind of a quiet thing. You keep it to yourself. But the word murmur in Bible times, it, it literally talked about a sound that somebody would make. When they were disgusted, it was kind of a guttural noise. And I'm not going to show you how it works. I don't even know. But it was a, a, a very obvious, not a maybe loud, but it was a very vocal way to express your disgust. And when Jesus had the audacity to love and to save Zacchaeus, the multitudes, they all murmured. They were disgusted. And notice, they were saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. Something incredibly important just happens. You see, through verse number 6, all of the vitriol and all of the hatred in the city of Jericho was all directed at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus may have been a rich man, no doubt about that. But Zacchaeus was a humiliated man and Zacchaeus was a shamed man. I, Zacchaeus was so despised. You couldn't find a man, a woman that had a good word to say about Zacchaeus. Did you see what just happens in verse 7? All the shame and all the humiliation, now it's on the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize from verse 6 and verse number 8 that Jesus took Zacchaeus' sins and he washed them away. Thank the Lord he did. But in verse number 7, he did another thing that sometimes we miss. The Lord Jesus took all the shame and all the disgrace that was on the back and the shoulders of little Zacchaeus. And now the Lord Jesus not only takes his sins away, but Jesus carries the disgrace and the shame and the humiliation. One week later, when he is hanging on the cross, dying for you and for me, the Bible says in Isaiah 53 and 4, Surely he hath uh, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, we all that are saved this morning understand and recognize that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And we all sing it, and we all proclaim it, and we all know it, and we believe it, that the blood of Jesus Christ has washed my sins away. I, there is nobody that's going to walk up to your pastor and fling your sins up in his face and say, I don't believe that Jesus washed that sin away. I don't believe that Jesus forgave me over here. You know, we know what an affront that would be to the word of God. We all know because of Jesus, our sins are gone. But there are a lot of Christians who know the sins are gone. But the humiliation and the disgrace of the sin, they think they need to carry. I can't believe I did that last week. I can't believe I did that when I was in high school. I'm so ashamed of what I did over here. I I can't believe what I did many years ago. And why, oh, no, 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 I know my sins are washed away. But somehow we think that we're doing God a favor when we remind him how sorry we are for those sins. But when Jesus hangs on the cross, our sins are in his body. But the sorrow of our sins are on his body. All the humiliation and all the disgrace. Jesus is carrying it on the cross. Just what he does for Zacchaeus a week later. He does for you and he does for me. Oh, we know our sins are cleansed. They're washed away. And those sins, they're all gone. But so is the humiliation and the disgrace. 
And as wrong as it is for you and for me to dredge up the sins of the past that are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and somehow be defeated and destroyed by them, it is equally wrong for you and I to dredge up all the embarrassment and all the humiliation and all the shame of days gone by. Our sins are gone and the humiliation and sorrow has been borne by Jesus Christ. And when Jesus goes to that cross a week later, we know he took our sins. But may I remind you what Zacchaeus learned. He also took our shame. The day before, the disciples are looking at each other. If Mr. Blessed isn't saved, who then can be saved? Standing under a sycamore tree, the Lord Jesus smiles and says, I'll show you who can be saved. If Jesus can save Zacchaeus, he can save you. We would love to be able to open the scriptures and help you from the Bible to understand how Jesus can be your savior. You know him as your savior. Well, you and I have our marching orders. Lesson number 81. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. About the master's business. It is the story of Zacchaeus. Father in heaven, I pray that even now you would do a work that a preacher can't do and Lord, while we might well preach words that ears can hear, you're the only one that can take the Bible and drive it into the hearts, into the lives of men and ladies and and young people. And Father, I pray in the quietness of this moment that if there's a man, a lady, boy or girl in this room who has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day they are saved. Lord, I pray for your people and I pray that you would remind us that you are still in the business of seeking and saving those who are lost. And as you love Zacchaeus, remind us that you love people in Chesterton, Indiana, in this part of this world. And and Lord, for somebody discouraged, I pray today you would embolden them with the fact that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. May we make his business our business. I wonder before I finish praying... There might be someone who's come in this auditorium today. And you would say, you know, preacher, I'm the one just like Zacchaeus. Oh, I may not be public enemy, number one. But it doesn't make a difference when God says there's none righteous. No, not one. When God says we're all an unclean thing, you and I, we all stand as sinners who need a savior. I wonder before I finish my prayer, if there might be someone in this auditorium today who would say, I am the one who needs Jesus Christ to wash my sins away.